Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. The gospel today that we're going to reflect upon is the gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the 40th to the 45th verse. It's in the continuing now of Jesus's first venture into public ministry in the, in the first gospel of Mark, which begins with the proclamation of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it sets the stage then, the gospel sets the stage in a sense for Jesus being revealed kind of as the creator because he is able to recreate goodness out of evil in the midst of the world. It is also following along the thematic of Jesus as prophet and as master over the forces and the powers of evil. That being in accord with the expectations of Israel, but in no way, shape, or form does it conform to the popular expectation of who the Messiah was going to be, if in fact there were those Jews, and there were, who believed in the coming of a Messiah. Not all did, but those who did thought that it would be a great dramatic entrance into world history that the great prophet would be like the great prophets of old, especially they would rely on Elijah. In one of the gospel passages, they also include in that Jeremiah and Isaiah, of course, is constant throughout the New Testament. So they, they anticipated that kind of prophetic presence. They also anticipated the restoration of the Davidic kingdom and that uh, whoever the Messiah was going to be, he would be uh, of King David, but exponentially greater than King David, extend the kingdom far beyond. And it involved in it, in, in many ways, a very political sense of who the Messiah would be. Very much actually something that's, uh, that's very much a part of the modern discussion also. Despite there being no evidence in the Gospels whatsoever of Jesus being involved in political activity, that there are those who, in the name of Jesus, try to recreate kind of a social revolutionary, a political revolutionary out of him, out of the pages of scripture, in order to suit their own needs, their own agendas, and, uh, and their own sense of worth and well-being, I suppose, in the modern world. They've had some popular media which tended to, uh, to support this image. I think I mentioned once before the film, The Gospel of St. Matthew, of course, um, produced by Pier Paolo Pasolini back in the 60s, which was very, very popular and very, very much part of kind of a cult film for the, for the radically progressive social justice warriors of the 70s. And yet at the same time, there seems to be very little grounding in the New Testament for this kind of, of interpretation of the Messiah. But I think it helps us to see when we have great expectations that somehow we project those um, into our faith, and in so doing, basically kind of restructure and recreate the gospel message in our own image and in our own likeness. Um, it happened certainly in early Israel. It happened certainly in the 20th century. And uh, my deepest suspicion is it continues unabated into the 21st century. But nevertheless, what we want to see is the prophetic fulfillment in terms of who Jesus says the Messiah is. And that prof prophetic role that he plays is, is one that in Mark's gospel, the people are astounded. He speaks with authority, the authority not of man, but of God, and therefore the voice of prophecy. We're going to see today also where Jesus continues the exercise of this power as kind of the creator of goodness out of evil 
as, uh, as kind of the Messiah with the power over evil. But because of false expectations, he, he, he hides that phenomenon in such a way that it, it's no longer something that the people should, uh, should be taken by because they will misconstrue it place false expectations on. That's part of unbelief in the world today. The world came to the point of, of imposing expectations on the Lord, on the church. And when in fact the Lord did not meet those expectations because that's not his way, and the church did not meet its ex those expectations because of her human weaknesses, that people say, well, then I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I don't believe in the church. I don't believe in God. Maybe I'll concede some kind of a higher power, but it's not personal. It certainly is, is not involved in the individual lives of people. It's, it's uh, movements. It's the force. All of these kinds of things. But the gospel doesn't speak in that language. It doesn't think in those terms. And what we're going to see in the gospel today is how the Lord understands the prophetic and the Davidic mission, the prophetic mission and the power over evil. And it begins with, a leper came to Jesus and pleaded on his knees. If you want to, he said, you can cure me. Feeling sorry for him, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Of course I want to, he said, be cured. And the leprosy left him at once and he was cured. This is the first part of this gospel passage. There's a number of things involved in this. We're familiar, of course, with the plight of the lepers in the ancient world, that with no cure available and the highly contagious nature of some forms of skin disease that they had, they were forced, therefore, to quarantine themselves and to stay outside of public areas and public arenas for fear they would infect others with their disease. If they came, if anyone came close to them, they were supposed to, they were supposed to warn them with the cry, unclean, unclean. And, uh, and they were certainly not allowed in public places. They were not allowed in, uh, in, in crowded spaces. They were not allowed in the towns and in the cities. I mean, we have some minor experience of this kind of thing with the whole whatever COVID thing that we had. And we had, you know, the notion of uh, social distancing, the you know, wearing masks, uh, and all of those kinds of things. So we know what it is when, when, you, when society decides that something, um, some physical condition, is dangerous to others, and the steps that they take. So is, was it, but even more so with the lepers. So by the very fact that the leper approaches Jesus, he violates the law. And yet he violates the law because he knows somehow that Jesus is able to heal him, to cure him, and take away from him this quarantine status, the status of isolation, the status of physical disfiguration and physical suffering. And then the gospel says, um, feeling sorry for him, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Two things here. The translation is a mistranslation, but one that has become standard and incorporated into the translations of the ancient scriptures. It doesn't say Jesus felt sorry for me. We've mentioned this before. It says that Jesus was angry. 
It's the same kind of phraseology that we had when Jesus uh, approached the death of Lazarus and said, you know, and, and Jesus was angry, not at Lazarus, not at the leper. There are those who say, well, if he was angry, the real translation, he was angry, then it's angry because the leper broke the Mosaic law. That's hardly consistent, however, with the flow of the gospel. Basically, he is angry at the presence of evil and what evil has done to one of God's children. That's the source of his anger. His anger is against the darkness and not against the person. And so basically, we might say then, instead of feeling sorry for him, we might say, and in anger, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and says, of course, I want to be cured. And he orders the darkness. He orders the fruit of human sinfulness to remove itself from this man and therefore heals the affliction that it has caused in his life. Here is the example of the Davidic Messiah. Here is the example of the Messiah with power over the forces of evil. It's not a political statement. It's a statement of the evil that afflicts, that afflicts the human heart, the human soul, and therefore corrupts the human body. That, you know, we have, we're, we're beginning to see, we, we always kind of assume that that was the intention of the medical profession, was to heal the affliction to the human body. And uh, now we find that there are segments of it, certainly, which do anything but that. Um, we find that those that are committed to taking the life of children, there are those committed to mutilating children and so forth. And so even that, which was considered to be kind of a noble and pristine institution, um, has, has now become tainted and disfigured by the, by the power of evil within the world, the power of deception and the power of death and the power of lies and deceit. It's incredible how infectious that becomes. And uh, it is that which angers Jesus. He is not angry necessarily at the afflicted people for the darkness that has entered into them. He is angry at the darkness itself. And so in that anger, he instantaneously reaches out his hand, and then he himself violates the law. He touches the leper, something you're never supposed to do, which takes away any legitimacy to the argument that his anger was against the breaking of the Mosaic law by the leper by approaching him, because he then does the same thing, he touches him. And immediately, the leprosy left him at once. What greater power, what greater example is there of the great power that the Messiah is going to have over the forces of evil. And we have to remember over and over again that all physical and moral evil in the world, according to the biblical view, was caused by human sinfulness. Not one-on-one, -on -one, not I sinned, therefore I have leprosy. That isn't it. Humanity sinned, and therefore I have leprosy. It is a, a corporate reality, the sin that afflicts us. And because it has empowered the forces of evil, every time any of us sins, even personally and, and secretly even, it is unleashing the power of evil into the world and in so doing, afflicting others with the power of darkness. So Jesus sees this, he heals him. The most important thing that we look at, of course, is, well, he healed leprosy. More important than that, he overcame the source of leprosy in the person. He eliminated not the disease, 
he eliminated the cause of the disease, and in so doing, the person was healed. This is another also manifestation. This is part of the revelation of Jesus of who he is. Notice once again, we enter into the messianic secret because the leprosy left him at once and Jesus immediately sent him away, sternly ordered him, mind you, say nothing to anyone. That same thing, don't tell them about what happened because you will create within them false expectations. And when I don't meet those false expectations, many of which were political, just as in the modern age, God does not meet the political demands of, the, of his people at all times, that there is therefore a questioning of his presence, a questioning of his power, a questioning of his person, a questioning of his existence. So what happens, that's the reason for the messianic secret. And, and we, we can understand that. We certainly can understand that. We have those who go around and uh, you know, proclaim that, that Jesus saves, which he does. But in such a sense, somehow or other, that you know, he, he's, he's going to do spectacular things. Well, he does. This is pretty spectacular. To be cured of leprosy is pretty spectacular. But it's on a personal basis and not on a communal, it's not on a, on a vast, wide political basis. And that's, I think, where the ancient Hebrews went astray in their idea of the Messiah and where the moderns uh, go astray also in their understanding or their expectations of the Messiah. And then he says, go and show yourself to the priest and make the offering for your healing prescribed by Moses as evidence of your recovery. Even if the man is cured, he is not under the law free to re-enter society again until that cure has been, has been certified by the priests. So Jesus allows him to get his certification with the strong command of to say nothing to anybody else. Just so go and say, I have been cured. But the man went away and he started talking about it freely and telling this story everywhere so that Jesus could no longer go openly into any town but had to stay outside in places where nobody lived. And so this is the consequence of violating the messianic secret is that the crowds are coming to him not to hear the prophetic word of life, not to be able to enter in, you know, to the new created order, not to be, have their sins forgiven and so forth, but to see a miracle, to see a wonder worker. And that's exactly what Jesus knew would happen, and that's exactly what happens. When the man in his enthusiasm for what has taken place goes and shows himself, and goes and shows himself not just to the priests, but to everyone and says, you know, Jesus cured me, Jesus cured me, then Jesus is no longer free to become really the real Messiah that he has come to be. The man violated the messianic secret and the consequences were exactly what Jesus knew they would be. They were undesirable. And what they did is isolated him because he couldn't continue his public work. He couldn't continue his public prophetic mission or his public messianic mission um, because people were not open to it. All they wanted now was miracles and wonders. Even though Jesus went to an outside place, even though Jesus isolated himself, people from all around would come to him. And so they would come and seek him out. He couldn't go into the towns and villages anymore um, because he'd be mobbed by, uh, by people seeking uh, miracles. But he could basically then go 
he could receive people who would undertake the great journey to come out to find him in the wilderness, to find him in isolated places, and reintroduce in some sense then maybe the personal nature of his mission um, and stay away from the political expectations of the people. So this is the gospel then that, that we have been given and we ask ourselves, all right, if we go through this carefully, we find that there's an awful lot more in it than, than seems to meet the eye. And in, then we ask ourselves, all of this is great drama, first century drama. And we might remind ourselves once again, as we do almost every week, I guess, that the gospel is not necessarily, not necessarily only for the first century, but it is applicable and relevant in every age, in every time, and in every place. It is the universal messianic message of salvation. And so it affects us as much as it affected the people of the first century. We might want to look into the gospel perhaps a little bit differently, and we might want to say to ourselves then, what in fact does this gospel therefore kind of say to us. We've already looked at some of that. We've already seen some of that in the commentary. We've noticed, for instance, that there is an absolute absence of political activism within the gospel. We've mentioned, for instance, the attempts to do that, and culturally one of the great attempts at mid-20th century was Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel of Matthew film. But it becomes, it becomes part of it, it becomes part of art, and it becomes part of the narrative, and it becomes part of the social commentary. And so the false expectations of the Messiah are kept alive within our society by the very people who kept those false expectations alive in the first century. Those are people of the covenant who should have been willing to listen and see more deeply into the mystery than they were to go out and decide that it was a political agenda for them to change the world. I, I think, for instance, um, there was a group of, uh, of uh, religious women in Chicago years ago, I think it was called NAR, National Organization of Women Religious or something, that came out with a condemnatory statement about Mother Teresa because instead of, uh, they, they maintained that instead of, you know, taking care of the poor on the streets and showing them human love and in human care and concern before their death, they condemned her for not attempting to overthrow the Indian government and create more justice and so forth in the world. The false messianism, that is, though that's the same kind of, of movement, the same kind of mindset, the same kind of disobedience to the word that we find in the first in first century Palestine in 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 relationship to the coming of Jesus in the first place. Each in our own way and in our own life also participate in some way unless we surrender completely to the word of the gospel and we begin to realize and to understand that it is not, that there's nothing, certainly it is a wonderful thing to heal the external consequences of sin in the world. It is where the church has always come up with its corporal works of mercy, which is kind of an old-fashioned way of talking about, I suppose, real social justice in the real sense of that word. The, Im the image of it being, the reality of it being, that we are undoing the consequences of the powers of darkness, the powers of sin. That, you know, by feeding the hungry and by tending the sick and so forth, we're counter, we're 
combating the hold that evil has on a person's body and therefore oftentimes also on their soul. This is part of the reason of the power of, of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, for instance. I have seen it be an instrument of healing, physical healing, in people's lives. That's not the normative way, but that's not, it's, that's not something that you dismiss. That's something that many of us have seen and many of us understand that. But it's also to liberate the sick person's soul from succumbing to the power of darkness over it, by succumbing to despair, by succumbing to anger, by succumbing to, to uh, senses of isolation and being alone and so forth. We are never alone as long as the Lord Jesus is among us and with us. And so the, that, that sacrament of the sick is intended to heal both the outside and the inside. It's an instrument for the forgiveness of sin, which is why it is restricted to the ordained priesthood to administer it. It's not, you know, just some kind of popular mystical healing experience. It is a sacrament of forgiveness because it is through the forgiveness of sins in which humanity is liberated from the power of sin. In our world also, in your world and in my world, this gospel helps us to put the brakes on our own, our own proclivities toward extending the messianic mission beyond that which uh, we ourselves know the Lord spoke of and the Lord meant. I think one of the great phenomenon of the contemporary world is the tremendous disappointment that came into Western civilization, especially after the First and the Second World Wars, that the First World War almost exclusively, except for the Ottoman Empire, was, uh, was among Christians. What a horrific scandal that is. What an incredible scandal that is. Um, the Second World War was also among people who were traditionally Christians, although certainly the uh, Soviet Union had expelled the divine from their society and suppressed religion. The Nazi regime did the same. If it had a religion, um, that's, it's very kind of uh, chic to say, well, they were Catholics, and therefore the Catholic Church is responsible for the Holocaust and all of that kind of thing. Rudolf Hochhuth's uh, play, The Deputy, which, which condemned Pius XII, and the ongoing suspicion about Pius XII and so forth without the proper historical understanding of the situations at all. But what happened really was the Nazis who did practice a religion practiced essentially occultism, that they became, uh, in fact, devil worshipers. And it, it, it showed. It showed in what they did because the things that the, the whole mass Holocaust, which extends not only to the Jews, but to six million other people as well, to homosexuals and mentally impaired, physically impaired, Slavs, so forth, gypsies, all of those people were included. The hatred for humanity could only be demonically inspired. There is no, there is no sociological, political f way to go in and to understand that phenomenon. We can understand the tools that the devil could use to do that. 
we understand the economic in inequity. We understand all of that kind of stuff, the injustices within the society, many of which were attributed to the Jews by the Germans and the Austrians and the Poles and so forth. Nevertheless, be they true or not true, whether there were social injustices inspired by that or, or radical economic inequities, but it's very hard for us to be able to go back and put together the pieces of the tools that evil used to generate the kind of spirit that led in to the Holocaust. And, and, and I think it behooves us to learn those pieces because that's part of what we can do. That's part of what we can. We can take the devil's toys away from him. We can take the devil's playthings away from him and therefore reduce his ability to be seductive and to entrap innocent human persons in his schemes and in his dark designs. In order for us to see it that way, we of course must believe in demons, and we find ample, ample opportunity in the gospel to do so. Dare not really define them too much since we don't know that much about them, but we do know there is a power for evil in the world. And we know that that power for evil in the world has a personal dimension to it. And we know if we take away their instruments of war, they are rendered less powerful, less effective in the world. That's why the response to evil ultimately comes to the conversion of the human heart. And with the conversion of the human heart, an openness to divine wisdom, an openness to divine understanding, an openness to the truth of the gospel and to keep our understanding of Jesus Christ in conformity with the person who he reveals to us in the words of sacred scripture. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.